0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com.
1: Amen. Church family, good to see you here this week. Glad you're with us. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin. I'm one of the pastors here. We've got a lot of folks standing in the back. So if we could scoot in every seat we're going to need here, if possible, if you could scoot towards the middle, that'll free up some of the outside aisles for those that are coming in. Grateful you're with us, y'all. Good, good to be back. Uh, I just got back from a two-week uh, study trip with a bunch of folks here from Northway to Turkey and Greece. Hiked dozens and dozens of miles, but counterbalanced that with about 800 pounds of baklava. So, um, but I'm glad to be back with you, and I'm really thankful because this week uh, I've been looking forward to with a lot of anticipation. Um, As the Lord would have it, we're kind of uh, informally calling this our Dubai week. Uh, Not only do we have the Childresses here, which we're so grateful for, long-term missionaries here through Northway that have been serving in Dubai for many, many years faithfully, uh, but also the chance uh, to have both Dave and Gloria Furman here. Uh, as well, Dave is the uh, the lead pastor of Redeemer Church in Dubai, and I'm excited for a number of reasons. One, because the partnership that we're trying to establish. Uh, with the ministry on the ground in Dubai. Dubai is one of the crossroads of the world right now. The nations are there in Dubai. There's a great opportunity for training and sending. And so it's a beautiful opportunity for Northway Church to be a part of what God's doing in a strategic part of the world uh, that's flanking the 1040 window. And so I'm excited about that. But I'm also excited because Dave Furman and Gloria Furman are longtime friends of mine. Mid-90s, when I was up at Rockin' UNT, any calls up in here? Come on. Right here, there we go. Got some old school there in the building right now. Um, uh, I met this, uh, this young guy and this young girl who were crazy zealots on the campus of UNT doing some radical dorm ministry. Um, had a heart for the Lord, a heart for the gospel, a heart for the nations. And uh, eventually, as I became the college pastor in Denton, uh, brought them onto part of my team to lead part of the missions effort of our college ministry. And they had a heart for the nations. Dave and Gloria did. Uh, 2006, Dave Furman developed a nerve disorder in his arms um, to the point that even today his arms are basically rendered disabled. So I say that up front because in case anybody wants to shake his hand afterwards, I'm just playing defense right now for him uh, on that front. But that didn't stop Dave and didn't stop Gloria from wanting to serve the Lord and the call that the Lord had put on their life. And so as they began to uh, consider what life could be like in uh, global missions and starting getting trained for global missions, they had kind of the Apostle Paul moment where they thought they were going to go to Spain, and the Lord redirected them to Dubai. 2008, they landed in Dubai. And then by 2010, uh, God used Dave and glory to help plant. Uh, Redeemer Church of Dubai, and it's been going ever since. On any typical Sunday, you can see up to 60 to 70 different nations gathered in their Sunday gathering. Um, and so the Lord has been so faithful all these years in Redeemer Dubai. And on top of that, they helped establish uh, Gulf Theological Seminary in 2015, where many men and women uh, among the Arab nations are being trained in, uh, in, in biblical theology and pastoral ministry. And so with that, uh, we have reconnected and have an opportunity uh, to see a partnership established here between our churches that I'm really excited about for you to hear about today. You'll see Dave here in just a moment. Gloria, you'll be introduced to here at the four o'clock service. We're doing a Q&A with them. Dave's authored a couple of books on suffering, uh, and Gloria's written about a thousand books on motherhood and parenting that are fantastic uh, but that being said, I am excited to introduce you to Dave Furman and for us to dive into the word together. So, would you welcome me in welcoming Dave Furman here to the stage? Thank you, Dave.
0: Well, good morning, Northway Church. It's a joy to be with you all here today. Uh, I am here, be joined shortly by my wife Gloria. We've been married 20 years, we have four kids. You saw that. Picture there, Eliza, Nord Jetson, and Troy. Just so thankful uh, for, for them. It was no small task getting to the U.S. this time around. It took us four flights, over 20 hours of flying. We had to go through immigration in Canada when we weren't even expecting to go to Canada at all. And then we lost all six of our suitcases and so we are, we've gotten back, we're very well acquainted with the baggage claim at DFW Airport because we, we went back six times, uh, each time just going to the carousel where the flights from Toronto were coming in. And every once in a while, we'd find a bag. And then we go again a couple days later and we find two bags. And then eventually the last two were mailed down to San Antonio. So we have everything, we're thankful to be here. We thought we were gonna get some colder weather coming here to the US, but I think we brought our, I'm so sorry, but I think we brought our desert Dubai weather to you here in Dallas. But this is, this is warm, um, but we're glad to be here. To our new friends that we're meeting today, as Pastor Shay said, um, we landed in Dubai. Our family landed in Dubai on August 23rd, 2008. You'll see a picture of us when we landed. That's our daughter, Eliza, who is 16 months old. Uh, Gloria was pregnant with our second child and uh, landing in August, we landed in the hot sweltering heat of Dubai, wondered what we had done. Uh, If you don't know much about Dubai, it's the largest city in the United Arab Emirates, also known as the UAE. It's one of seven countries on the Arabian Peninsula. So Saudi Arabia takes up most of the peninsula and then you have these smaller countries kind of wrapped around. One of those is the United Arab Emirates or you could call it the UAE. Uh, We border Oman, we border uh, Saudi Arabia and then we're just a little bit across the Persian Gulf to the country of Iran. If you zoom in a bit on the UAE, uh, you'll see that the UAE is made up of seven Emirates, kind of like a state. Um, uh, but we call them emirates or or kingdoms. The the, uh, capital's Abu Dhabi, and that's where most of the desert is. And it's the biggest emirate. And then you have Dubai, which is the most populous uh, city or or emirate. A few fun things about our city. From Dubai, you can take a seven hour plane ride to two thirds of the the world's population. We also have the world's tallest building, the Burj uh, Khalifa. Uh, It's over 200 stories tall, And an interesting fact about it is the first 20 or 30 stories are a hotel. Then the next, I don't know how many stories, but the next section are apartments. And then the last, really almost half, are offices. And the reason that the top half are offices is because uh, you can't live that high up. Because, you know, if you know anything about skyscrapers, they kind of sway a little bit. And when you get that high up, you can't lay down or you'll get vertigo. So it's that tall of a building. Dubai is also a melting pot. We have... Uh, many of the world's least reached people groups gathered all around us in Dubai. As Pastor Shay said, we have over 60 nationalities that, uh, that gather. And our church is almost 90% Easterners and Africans. So we have about 10% Westerners, but about 90 plus percent are people from places like Nigeria and Egypt and Lebanon and Kenya, the Philippines, India, Pakistan. Um, it's a little taste of heaven every time we gather uh, on the weekends. And our city is also very transient. People are in and out. I once heard it said that pastoring an international church like ours is like trying to hug a parade. You know, parade's always moving by. It's impossible to stop. And it feels like people are always coming in and out, maybe a bit here in Dallas too, a bit of the transient uh, nature of a global city. But we've seen that turn from a problem to a possibility. While it might look like a problem losing great leaders and losing great people on a regular basis, instead of seeing it as a problem, we've seen it as a real possibility in terms of sending people out. And many times sending them back to their home countries to uh, engage in gospel work uh, that they learned or grew in. While in Dubai. So God is indeed uh, building his church in the Middle East, but it hasn't been easy. Uh, Shay mentioned the disability in my arms. Uh, i can I can carry a bottle of water, but I can't open it. Um, I can carry about one or two pounds. I can move my arms when I preach, so that's a blessing. Uh, but there's not much I can do with my with my arms and I can't shake hands please pray for healing perseverance it's been so long but we don't want to give up we want we don't want to lose heart in praying that god could miraculously heal me whether just directly from him or through a doctor and so please pray but if you see my family later on this morning when they arrive uh carrying everything or opening doors for me it's not because I'm some kind of prima donna pastor <laughs> at least i don't think so Um, On a trip to the U.S. for a pastor's conference I'll tell you one brief story I was eating lunch with a table full of other lead pastors Sitting next to me was one of our elders named Mac. And these pastors didn't really know me. I didn't really know them yet. But without saying a word right there at the lunch, we were served steaks. And Mac just leans over and starts cutting my steak for me. You can imagine these pastors are really staring and don't know what's going on and sensing the awkwardness around a table of pastors who weren't aware of my disability. Mac just joked and said, isn't this the way your elders serve you? <laughs> and so we're just, we're thankful that we can laugh and, and just even have joy despite our circumstances. That's what we're called to do, right? We don't, our joy isn't to be tied to our ever-changing circumstances, but to the one great permanent circumstance of Christ and the gospel, but it's not easy. And so we do ask for your prayers. He's done amazing things as well. We've seen people come to faith from least reached uh, nations. God also has always provided a place for us to meet uh, during various seasons, we've been kicked out of all kinds of venues. And uh, this is a picture of our launch service back February uh, 12, 2010. And we were just thrilled who got brought. Um, this year, the, uh, the rulers of our wonderful country, and we love them, they decided to change the weekend uh, with 20 days' notice in December. Now, just think about that for a moment here in the US. If some presidential decree came down and said the weekend will now be changed from Saturday, Sunday to Sunday, Monday, and you have 20 days' notice to figure it out. So, schools had 20 days' notice, churches like ours, uh, it was quite stressful. But in the kindness of God and the kindness of our rulers, we were able, because of the, the change and shift of weekends, Fridays are a big wedding day for the whole culture, and we meet just in a hotel. And so we were always having trouble finding a place uh, to meet. Uh, but due to the weekend change, we were, we were able to find a great location. So if you ever Google later on uh, the world's most beautiful building in the world, or I guess the world's most beautiful building, Dubai, if you type that in, uh, you'll come out with the Museum of the Future. And it's this oval-shaped building that's just beautiful. And it's kind of got a big hole in the middle. It's just this crazy... Architectural design And right behind it You have these iconic Emirates towers uh, well, well, we don't meet in those buildings But across the street from them <laughs> And another building uh, is where Redeemer Church of Dubai meets, and it's just, it's just wonderful. It's in the very center of downtown Dubai, right on the train line, right where the bus stops, lots of parking in the back. And, so, uh, and we're meeting on the Lord's Day, meeting on Sundays. And so uh, pray for us, even on Saturday as you're going to sleep, we're getting ready uh, to, uh, to gather together as a church. So do pray for Redeemer Church of Dubai, our seminary, uh, the Gulf Theological Seminary has 133 students from 27 countries. I teach the church planting uh, class and we uh, just graduated in the last 12 months, 15 students. Um, I was able to teach students from Angola, India, Lebanon, Philippines, and Nigeria, men that were getting ready to go plant churches. Uh, some in our city of Dubai, some in the UAE, and some back in their home countries. And so uh, on this picture, these three men are, uh, are members at Redeemer. Two of them are uh, on our staff at Redeemer, and all three of them would love to plant a church. Uh, Samuel's from Nigeria. He wants to plant an African church in Dubai. Uh, Alan from the Philippines wants to plant a multi-ethnic church in Dubai. And then Prem wants to go back to uh, to India and be involved in planting a church there, Northway Church. We're so grateful for you. Thank you for for praying for us. We're so excited about a partnership together. Uh, pastor Shay and Pastor Jonathan visited, I guess, several months ago, and uh, we got to sit under Shay's teaching at Redeemer, and they loved it. My kids were like, "Wow, this was such a great sermon, Dad. Why can't we have Shay preach every week?" And I said, "Well, because I'm the pastor here, and he lives over there." But. Um, <laughs> Shay and I did go to college together. We had history classes together, uh, which was a joy. That was what, I don't know, 25 years ago. I don't even know how long ago, but our relationship goes way back. And Gloria actually became a Christian uh, through uh, the influence and the evangelism of Tiffany Sumlin. So she went to University of North Texas and and Tiffany was leading a Bible study and led Gloria uh, to Christ. So to say that we love, uh, the Sumlins would be an, an understatement of uh, just being led to Christ. And then Shay officiated our wedding ceremony. I think it was the second or third wedding ceremony. You did a great job, by the way. Loved it. We're still married 20 years later. And uh, Northway Church, you have a wonderful pastor. You have a wonderful team here. We love you. It's a blessing uh, to be with you. And it's a joy to open up God's word. So let's pray as we get into his word. <clears throat> well, Father, we thank you for another day when your mercies are new. We thank you for your love and care for us. Speak to us now through your holy word. Transform our hearts and lives. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. I wanna talk about a wedding today. Weddings are a big deal. Magazines are dedicated to weddings. There are movies about weddings. The wedding planner, the father of the bride, the princess bride, runaway bride, a TV show called Bridezilla's. Don't necessarily recommend it, but it's there. While all cultures have weddings, it's interesting to see how they differ across cultures. For the most part, weddings in our host host culture separate the men from the women for almost all of the festivities I've I've officiated had the privilege of officiating a wedding a traditional Indian wedding in South India a number of years back and I was told that over a thousand people will be attending this wedding. And I thought, wow, this is the biggest wedding I've ever been a part of. I was officiating, I was a little bit nervous, but I was puzzled when I got there and there were hardly 70 or 80 people there at the beginning beginning of the wedding. And it was a small room and I wondered, how, where are the other people there? And it's, it's then that I learned in their culture that the reception was the main event. Most people skipped the wedding and the pastor's comments and just came for the food and the party afterwards. Now that wouldn't fly here in the U.S., would it? Because for us, the reception is the reward for sitting through the wedding, right? No wedding, no food. Those are our cultural rules. Well, I'm most proud of the food at our wedding reception 20 years ago. We're still the only people I know who had Chick-fil-A cater their wedding thousands of Chick-fil-A nuggets for our closest friends. Now we still love Chick-fil-A, but just to be honest, we're in a little shock right now because here in some places you can go to the store and buy these large bottles of Chick-fil-A sauce now. God bless America, (laughs) truly incredible. We've been gone three years and everything changes. Well, it's now been 20 years since our wedding day. And just to be clear, so I don't get in trouble with Gloria later, our reception is great, but no doubt that the ceremony was, the wedding ceremony was the main Event. Our church building was very long at the time, and we had this this long rectangle uh, building with green carpets. And so the walk for the bride was called the Green Mile. It was so long. And so when those doors opened, I could hardly see uh, Gloria and her father. They were like dots on the horizon. Shay was standing there next to me, and we're just waiting forever for for them to come down. But eventually she did. We got married, and the rest is. History. Well, today in our passage, we see a wedding. We see a wedding with some very interesting and unique uh, cultural features to it. And so if you have a Bible or, or a way to look at the scriptures here, we wanna look at Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. So the first of four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first book of the New Testament. It's a parable in a series of parables. And we'll look at verses one through 14 we'll kind of read it as we go but there are two major themes in the passage if you like an outline or if you like taking notes let me just tell you where we're headed two just two points two hooks to hang the scripture on here number 1 the king's invitation and then number 2 the people's response we'll see two things the king's invitation and the people's response so first let's look at the king's invitation and Look at the first two verses, one and two. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. In every parable, there's a cast of characters. The king is God the father and the son here is Jesus. Jesus is comparing the kingdom of heaven to a feast, a feast given by a king in honor of his son parables aren't perfect analogies, but they are a comparison. This king is very generous. In verse three, the servants are sent out to summons those who were invited to the feast. You'd have to do this. There were no iPhones, no Google calendars in these days. In the ancient Near East, the king might somehow send out an invitation. They would somehow RSVP, but then the servants would have to notify the invitees when the feast was ready when the party was about to begin. So notice what happens, though the 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 uh, servants go out, and the people don't come. Now this would have absolutely shocked the original hearers of this text. When a king invites you to his palace, what do you do? Well, here's just a little hint: uh, you go. It's your obligation. And worse, if you've RSVP'd in the past, now the king is summoning you to come. Uh, This would be horribly shaming to the king to not show up. Now, I've actually met some of the sheikhs Uh, or you could call them kings in our country. Our country is made up of seven shakedoms or kingdoms. I've had the privilege of of meeting three and sitting down with two for lengthy conversations. Now, these were not appointments that I set up according to my calendar because when a king invites you, you come. And in one case, it was my first time, I came up with a couple of other pastors and there were lots of big, beautiful blue peacocks in the front yard. And when we came in, everything was layered in gold beautiful palace. It was the first time I shook someone's hand and called them your royal highness and wasn't joking around with a friend. Now, this was a king. This was royalty. And it was extraordinary because this king gave us land in our north to, for us to build a building for one of our church plants. But that meeting didn't happen when we were available. That meeting happened when the king wanted it to happen. We just had to be ready at a moment's notice. One other time, just the night before, we were invited to a king's palace. And so what did we do? Well, we just uh, canceled everything on our calendars to show up and meet the king. Why? Well, because he's the king. That's why he summons and we go. Well, in our passage, the king is ignored, right? The, 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 the message goes out, the, uh, hey, the feast is, is ready, and they don't come. The king is ignored, but this king is incredibly gracious. Rather than being offended and turning away, verse four, the king tells the servants, go out again, and this time, why don't you describe the lavish feast that's prepared? Why don't you give out some, some of the details? And they do. Uh, the king says, tell them, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. See, this was no ordinary feast. This was not just a wedding. This was the greatest wedding, a feast like no other. But verse five, look at their response. They paid no attention. Even getting the details that this was a feast of all feasts, they didn't pay attention. They went off, one to his farm. And another to his business. They couldn't be interrupted. Notice that that word there, his. His farm, his business. Not even the king could interrupt their lives. But the shocking response didn't end there. Verse six, this time around, they seized his servants. They treated them shamefully and even killed them. And this is an insane response to an invitation to a wedding. I mean, this is this is craziness. Just step back for a second. Just observe the scene. Just try to picture this in your head. The servants had a message of good news. The servants had a message of, of good news, a, a great invitation, a wonderful invitation. The king wants you to come to his son's wedding. The best food, the best celebration. All you have to do is accept the invitation. All you have to do is to walk in. All you have to do is just show up. But what did they do instead? Well, they beat up the messengers simply for inviting them. Now, this is insane. Well, it's crazy. It makes no sense. So, verse 7 the king was angry. You bet he was. His servants were killed. He sent his troops in, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. The righteous anger of the king was burned. Rightfully so. Perfect justice was executed, but we still have a problem here. We still have an empty feast. We still have an empty wedding party. We still have an empty room. His son was to be honored. Nobody's there. So verse eight and nine, the king sends out his whatever servants are left or maybe maybe some, some new servants and he sends them out one more time with new instructions. Look at verses eight and nine. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready and those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Well, the original guests weren't worthy. Who do they represent in the parable? Well, they represent the Jewish people and their religious leaders. They don't seem to think that they need the king. The king says, all right, then I'm gonna send out my servants to to a different people. to a a new people. He's talking about the Gentiles. Go to the main roads and invite everyone and invite anyone. In verse 10, that's what they did. These people had no relationship to the king. It was a surprising invite. No reason to be a guest. But what was their response? Well, they came. The servants gathered anybody and everybody last minute invites. They didn't check people's passports at the door. No background checks, no proof of bank account balance. Everyone on the streets was invited to the king's palace and that wedding hall was filled. Every seat was taken, but then something's wrong. Look at verses 11 and 12. The king comes out. He looks at the guests. And he sees a man there with no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Everyone else was wearing a wedding garment except this one man. Oftentimes in the ancient Near East, kings would hand out wedding garments upon entry into The wedding ceremony, that's probably what happened here. But if not, at least all are wearing the same white kind of garment or at the very least wearing clean garments, an acceptable garment. We don't know exactly, but probably the king handed these out. But what we do know is that one man there in the reception, there's one man who is not dressed for the occasion. Have you ever found yourself in an awkward dressing situation? You arrive at the event and everyone's wearing a suit or a tuxedo or a fancy dress and you've shown up in jeans and a Dallas Cowboys football jersey untucked. And you look around and you do what you can. You tuck in the jersey, you sit, you try to hide behind the food. Well, my most embarrassing dress code moment happened when one of my seminary professors visited us in Dubai. And I thought, yes, I'm gonna take him to my favorite Chinese restaurant in the world. But for some reason, I was wearing some out-of-date cargo shorts that day and, and, a, sh- and a shirt and, and uh, we show up to the restaurant and I'm so excited. I'm gonna introduce my professor to this restaurant and they look up at me, look down first and say, uh, you guys can't come into the restaurant. We have a dress code. You have to wear pants to come into our Chinese restaurant. You can imagine how embarrassed I was. This was not just any professor. This was a professor who puts fear into mortal men. This is a professor with two doctorates. This is a professor I was nervous about uh, meeting with anyway. Well, the, the, the hostess said, oh, there's, that's no problem. I'm going to go back and get you a pair of pants that our waiters wear and you could go put those on. You can imagine the embarrassment then. I was handed pants, told to go to the restroom, and I changed into these pants. I've now labeled that walk from the restroom to my professor's table as the walk of shame. It was Horrible, but I had the wrong wardrobe on and I needed to conform to their standards. See, the man in our passage, the man there that, that the king points out had the wrong wardrobe on, no wedding garment, far worse than showing up at uh, a, a formal event wearing a football jersey or shorts to a fancy restaurant. Somehow he had snuck through the bouncers at the door. He was an, an invited guest who was acting like a wedding crasher. It seems he thought his own garments were good enough for the king. But he was wrong. The king commands the servant, look at verses 13 and 14, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. On the face of it, that seems like a strong penalty for leaving your tie at home. He doesn't get handed a garment like I did at the Long Yin Chinese restaurant. Uh, Back in verse 12, he couldn't answer the king for his wardrobe choices. And here we have the king, cast him in utter darkness the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's judgment, that's eternal judgment. See, not having that wedding garment on meant not having eternal life with the king, with God. That sounds like a severe punishment for putting on the wrong shirt that morning. But of course, this text is not about that. This text is not about your wardrobe choices. No one has to sneak out the back doors during my prayer because of what you wore here this morning. The text is not about wardrobe choices. This is about our response God's work. And that's the second point uh, we see in our passage. We've seen the king's invitation. That invitation goes far and wide. It goes to anybody and it goes to everybody. But we see the people's response. That's number two. That's the second uh, point this morning, the people's response. Now this man, his response, he had mocked the host's provision of wedding clothes. This was an insult. There was a complacency, even a rebellion. His best, the best he could do on his own wasn't good enough for God. And so that man is thrown out of the feast. His deeds remind us of the book of Isaiah. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Well, the point is we're not fit for the feast on our own. But in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10, the prophet had a solution. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God for, now listen to this, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest. The meaning of the parable is clear. Most parables have one main point. And this, this parable is so clear. God provides a feast. That's a symbol of his kingdom. It's a feast for his son. And that invitation goes far and wide to anyone and to everyone. But if you reject this invitation or you come to this invitation wrongly, you miss the feast. You don't get to partake in this celebration, in this party. If you think you can get in with your own works, you'll be thrown out. Verse 14 tells us, many are invited, but few will come. There's a call and there's a response. It's been said that the word chosen here was originally a synonym for Israel, but with their rejection also came an invitation to the Gentiles, to the whole world. And Jesus is speaking of the Jews, and he's speaking of the religious leaders. These are the ones who boasted of their tithes. Look at how generous we are. They were the ones who stood at the street corners and prayed really loud prayers so that everybody could see how just pious and how holy they were. The point is, those things don't save. Even if those were good works done with a good heart, there is no 100% pure motive. No works can save us. What he's saying here is you're no better than a tax collector before God. You're only invited if you say nothing in my hands I bring. That's the only way you can enter into this feast. Those wedding clothes represent the righteousness of Christ. And our passage shows at least four ways you can respond to the king's invitation. First, you can respond with apathy. In the early verses, that's what we saw. Those first invitees, they went on in their own business, his business, his business his farm. Their lives could not be ignored. And it was an apathetic kind of response. Well, secondly, a second response is hostility. There's persecution here. These servants are going out with a good message. They get beaten for their good news. They get killed for their good news. There could be a hostility towards this king's invitation. A third response is self-righteousness. So we see apathy, we see hostility, and then we see self-righteousness. That's that man in his own clothes. That's that man not wearing the wedding garment. It's the man who thinks he can get in. It's the person who thinks they can get in to the feast on their own merit. And then there's a fourth way. And this is the good news. There's a fourth way. These are the people who actually came into the wedding banquet, this represents anyone who has come to Jesus on the basis of Christ's righteousness, and that's it. And all are welcome, anybody and everyone. And it's shocking because it's the same father who hosts the feast in honor of his son. It's the same father who sent his son into this world. Jesus, God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. He would come live a perfect life. He would be tempted, yes, but he would never sin. And he would set his face towards Jerusalem and set his face towards the cross. And he would march willingly to that cross, even dying on the cross, taking upon the sins of all of his people from all times, past, present, and future. And there upon the cross, he took, his, he took the place of us sinners, paid that penalty, was buried in a tomb. And how do we know all that he said and all that he did was true it's Because on the third day, being buried in that tomb on the third day he rose from the dead and he proved that everything he said and everything he did was true. Now friends this is the gospel the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ this is the good news this is the invitation that the king hands out and gives out to anybody and to everybody and so it doesn't matter friend what you did last year or even last night If you're here sitting this morning, this is the grace of God in bringing you into this room. Even today, if you don't yet know this King, if you don't yet know King Jesus, even today, you can turn to him and you can just open your hands, just just empty and you can say in your heart to God that, that there's nothing you can do to earn salvation. There's nothing you can do to come into this feast except to say, there's nothing I've done. You've done it all. And it's to repent of your sin and to believe in Jesus to save you. This parable here demands a response. By not responding, you are responding. And so if you've never responded to follow Jesus, come to his banqueting table. Come into the feast. Accept this invitation. Turn away from your old way of life and turn to Christ. Well, that's the first response here. We see the King's invitation. We see the people's response. The first half of that is that you, you've got to come in to the feast. You've got to turn to Christ, but there's a second part as well, as Christians were called to share this invitation with others. So first we have to accept the invitation, we have to come in, but then we get to be a servant of the king and we get to tell others about this invitation. We're ministers of reconciliation. Second Corinthians chapter five says we're Christ's ambassadors. We're the ones who go out and do the inviting today. And so are you inviting your friends to follow Jesus? Are you inviting your coworkers or maybe those that are on campus with you if you're a university student or maybe in your schools, wherever you find yourself, are you inviting people to this feast? Are you inviting people here on Sundays? Well, let me just share one or two stories of inviting that have happened at Redeemer Church in Dubai. And these have nothing to do with me. So I get to brag on our sweet church. First, let me share a story about our oldest elder, Jerry. Uh, Jerry's from the Philippines. And he's wonderful. He loves sharing about Jesus. And every time I'm with Jerry, uh, he's got some story of how he's shared his faith recently. One time at my dinner table, we were sitting with about eight of us there, and he's sharing about this man from Syria, and I was, I was thinking, "Wow, what an amazing opportunity. When, when did this happen?" And he said, "No, it just happened this afternoon." And those are like all Jerry's stories. He's always sharing his faith. Well, on this occasion, Jerry met a man named Adam from Afghanistan. He met him at his workplace. He started sharing the gospel with him. He would be bringing Adam to our Redeemer Church services and he would come month after month. So for about six months, Adam had sat under the preaching of God's word. Well, one week, Pastor Morgan from Australia preached on the Good Shepherd from John chapter 12. It was great. Uh, but later on that week, Adam had a dream. In our part of the world, God uses dreams and visions in a variety of ways to maybe get kind of uh, Jesus in people's heads in different ways and kind of be a first pointer to his word. And so Adam has a dream, but in this dream, he saw this white light and he saw this Jesus figure who identified himself as the good shepherd. And so Adam comes the next Sunday and he can't believe he's heard the sermon on John chapter 12 on Jesus is a good shepherd. And then he has this dream of the good shepherd calling him to himself. And so he comes back to church that next Sunday and he's telling me this. And he says, he's just blown away. He said, wow, this, I had this incredible experience. His English is pretty decent. And so we're talking this through with him and he says, I, I, I can't, I can't do it. I can't, I can't believe in Jesus because I know what it'll, what, what it'll cost me. If I become a Christian, even my friends here in the city could kill me. And so he said, I can't do it. Well, listen to this. Uh, He has another dream along the way, but three weeks later, Samuel from Nigeria, who's on our staff team, he preaches his first sermon at Redeemer. And I, I asked him and some others months before, they were preaching their first sermon and Samuel was up on the screen earlier as one of our seminary graduates. And I just said, you just pick whatever text you want. Your favorite text, whatever you'd like. And so months before uh, this particular Sunday, Samuel picked Psalm 23 to preach. And if you know that psalm, you know that the Lord is your shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And so Adam listens to this Nigerian staff member preach. Afterwards, he and a number of other Afghans and Iranians, they came up to me, and it was kind of the semicircle around me. And another guy, another guy from Afghanistan, I'll call him Henry. Uh, he's just really, really excited. And he says that he. Now follows Jesus. I don't know if it happened right in that service or that week or or when it happened, but but Henry's just thrilled to be able to share. And so I'm I'm, I'm getting really really excited, and I'm starting to kind of ask him a bunch of questions about the gospel, about what he believes, about about what happened, about what he thinks now. Uh, how are you saved? All those kind of questions that you would ask someone and maybe assess. Hey, do you believe? And and he's answering all these questions, and he seems seems to have a present posture of faith. And we're super excited about Henry, and we're just kind of clapping and and almost cheering. And we, I just say, okay, let's just. Praise God. Let's thank God for what, what God has done in Henry's life. And so we just gather around and we pray and uh, we praise God and uh, we kind of clap and we're really excited. But then there's Adam, who I just told you about. He's kind of on the outskirts of the, the semicircle. He kind of pushes his way forward and he, and he raises his hand. And I said, Adam, do you, do you have something you want to ask or something you want to say? And Adam said, uh, yes. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. He will protect me, I believe. And so I have the same kind of conversation I just had with Henry and I'm asking him a bunch of questions about the gospel and about what he believes in. Clearly he believes in. Clearly he has a posture of faith. And so we just kind of clap and we just get around again and just do it all over again and just pray and praise God for Adam. A few months later, we, we baptize Adam and uh, he's back in his home country now. And he indeed has had to face persecution, has had to run for his life. Thankfully he is safe and we hope to see him back in Dubai uh, soon. But just think about God's kindness here. A Filipino elder invites an Afghan into our community. An Australian pastor preaches on Jesus as a good shepherd. God gives Adam a dream of the good shepherd. A Nigerian staff member preaches on Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And all alongside all of this, Adam is attending a Bible study led by an Iranian who is sharing Jesus with them, all among a church family in Dubai in the Middle East. Isn't that incredible how God works amongst his people? Well, here's one more story. I, I don't know how much time I have, but you know, Shay, I think till 12. Is that how, is that, I don't know. That we can overlap, we can overlap, over, overlap services. Just one more story. This is too good to not share. Uh, okay, one more. There was a homeless man living in a park in uh, Dubai. He left Cameroon weeks earlier uh, for a job. he, gave up his life savings in order to um, have this job, but that promise of a job never came through. He shows up in Dubai and there's no job. He has no way home, he has nowhere to live. At the same time, one of our elders who manages a hotel and a fellow employee, also a church member, on the hotel premises, they discover an injured baby crow at their hotel. Now, if I see an injured baby crow, I will probably just walk by Uh, but not these two men. They actually uh, pick up the injured baby crow and they take pity on this crow and they nurse the crow back to health. The crow grows and they let it fly around the hotel like a personal pet the bird would sit on their shoulders. Eventually though, the crow started pecking the heads of some of the guests, which isn't really good for hotel business. Uh, The manager sadly asked the employee who really loved the crow to drive across the highway and release the crow into the wild. So the crow flies away, but he flies away to a park and sits next to a homeless man. And a crow who'd been let go uh, now befriends a man who had nowhere to go. Now, I couldn't make up this story even if I tried. But listen to this. The man notices a little tag on one of the crow's feet. And the crow is just so kind, just sitting there. The man actually takes the tag and it has a phone number on it. And this man from Cameroon, he goes and says, oh, wow, I, I, I should call this number on this crow's foot. And so he dials the number and it was the phone number of that church member who loved the crow and nursed him to hell. I have no idea why he felt like he wanted to tag his phone number on the crow, but it was this pet he loved the crow. And so the man calls the phone number because why not? How often does this happen in your life? How many crows have phone numbers on their feet? Well, the the Filipino church member answers the phone. He talks with the man and invites them. They meet together. He ends up giving him a job and housing at the hotel and invites him into church. He eventually joins our church membership. It was our first member edition via bird in our church's history. (laughs) Now think about it. God sent a baby crow out of its nest injured somehow into the hands of a follower of Christ who took care of him and then onto the shoulders of hotel guests who were annoyed by him. And then across town to a park to a man who desperately needed God to intervene in his life. And the crow links these two men together. And this Filipino man invites this Cameroonian friend into church. He joins the church and God is building his church through unique ways of invitation. Friends, we're called to be ambassadors. That's our job. It's who we are, whether it's at the workplace like Jerry, whether it's a man finding your pet crow and gives you a phone call, every story is different. But each one had a servant inviting others to the wedding party. Each one had a servant inviting others into uh, God's kingdom. And so Northway Church, are you keeping your eyes and ears open, looking to invite others to the kingdom? The servants in our parable, they are Evangelists. They are those who share the good news. We're called both to believe the gospel and we're called to share the gospel. That's the proper response. So in closing, maybe you're intimidated by that. Maybe you feel like you've only been a Christian for a couple months, or maybe you've been a Christian for a while, but you're just not confident in sharing the gospel. Maybe that makes you nervous to think about sharing with your friend or think about sharing with your family member. Maybe you fear their response or you fear that they'll think you're crazy, or you just fear that you just can't clearly articulate the good news of the gospel. Well, I'll just end here with the story of Charles Spurgeon's grandfather preaching. And I love this story. Sp- the story. The young, famous Charles Haddon Spurgeon was late to come to the church. He was, was late, his grandfather was there. And so his grandfather just jumps up to the pulpit and starts preaching. Uh, in the middle of the sermon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he walks in. And by that time, he was so wildly famous, they were printing his sermons in the London newspapers. And so his grandfather stops the sermon and says, okay, everybody, why don't you take a look? Take a look for yourself, there's my grandson, he's arrived. The, the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he's here. Take a look at him. He may be a greater preacher than I, but he can't preach a greater gospel. See friends, it's the gospel that has power. Romans 1, verse 16, it's the gospel that is the power of God. So no matter whether you've been a Christian for two days or for several decades, we are armed with that same good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save us from our sins and rose from the dead, proving that he had done so. And so brothers and sisters, God has brought you to this church, to Northway Church, to be on mission together, to be on mission here as you gather on Sundays and as you scatter throughout the week. And so would you be a people who are armed with that good news and do whatever you can in your power to send, to pray, to go, armed with that same gospel of Jesus Christ to his glory. Let's pray. Oh Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time to gather together with your word and to hear what you're doing in your word, to hear about this King's invitation. Oh Lord, we pray that if anybody here would not yet know Christ, we pray that they would turn today and follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And we pray for those that are saved, Lord, that you'd use Northway Church to take this good news of the gospel to their community, to their neighborhoods, and beyond. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 1115, and 4 p.m., and would
1: love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.